Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where, as always, you'll go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. And my guest today is a fantastic one called Evelyn Kelly, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Orphan Drug Consulting. Now, the fact that this episode goes on for more than 50 minutes will tell you it is an absolute cracker. My guest today is a very, very accomplished entrepreneur, but is also a pharmacist by trade and a real expert in the rare disease space. The conversation today covers loads of different ground. And for me personally, it was it was particularly interesting getting the view perspective and vantage point from the drug development and biotech kind of eyes as opposed to the vendor space um and evelyn actually can sit on both sides of the fence which made her a particularly interesting guest so in today's episode you'll hear a real deep dive into the world of orphan drugs rare diseases and personalized medicines including kind of how it how it all came about how it's evolved and now how it's also the fastest growing area of the drug development space and then also talks uh, very passionately about the exciting phase that we're in in terms of uh, the, the market that we work in and, and what that means for vendors in terms of things that if you're a CDMO, for example, or a CRO, what you're going to have to think about in order to adapt and improve moving forward. I loved you know, doing a deep dive into her startup story and how she ended up creating the orphan drug consulting company and you know what that's been like on the way in the step ups that are required which is which is fascinating for anyone interested in that kind of part of uh part of uh, her story also we, we cover quite a lot of ground in terms of covid the impact on the wider health population what that meant for biotechs and some of the challenges in getting rare disease products to patients. And finally, some great pearls of wisdom for young female kind of leaders navigating their careers in the space. For background, Evelyn has over 15 years experience in the pharmaceutical industry, both distribution and orphan drug companies. Working across supply chain, quality assurance and management roles, she brings kind of years of experience in manufacturing and distributing orphan drugs and specialty drugs to over 50 countries globally. Today, she specializes in the management of supply via virtual outsourced models and has been named both a QP and RP on multiple licenses. She's held various positions in Shire, NPS Pharma and PTC Therapeutics and designed and ran successful supply chains for different products. She founded the Orphan Drug Consulting Company in 2017 with a vision of supporting companies across the drug development cycle. She holds a Master of Pharmacy from Robert Gordon University and a Master of Business from the Irish Management Institute. She also acts as an Associate Professor for the School of Pharmacy, Trinity College Dublin, and in 2022, to just top it all off, she was named as a finalist in the Entre uh, Entrepreneur of the Year for EY. What a fantastic guest. As always, thanks for listening. Um, it's great to have your ears here today. Please leave us a kind review. And if you get a second, give us a, a share with a colleague or an industry connection. And above all, enjoy today's episode. Hey, Evelyn, welcome to Molecule to Market. Hi, Raman. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the invite. 
Well, it has taken me about a year and a half to get you on the show, <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm I'm delighted that we've uh, we finally got you here. So, Evelyn, I've had the pleasure of knowing of you and and having met you as well over the last couple of years. But let's assume our listener has no idea who you are or what you do. Give them a little bit of the backstory about you and how you ended up kind of in the sector and ultimately to what you do today at Orphan Drug Consulting. Sure, Raman. Thank you. So, yeah, I'm a pharmacist by training and I joined the pharmaceutical industry um, after working community and hospital pharmacy in, in Australia, the UK and Ireland for a number of years. I just felt that I um, was interested in the industry and I started my career in distribution in Ireland um, in a company which was called United Drug, um, part of UDG Healthcare at the time. Um, And from there, then I transitioned into going into more of the biotech space, working for Shire Pharmaceuticals. I was in quality assurance at the time um, and I transitioned to supply chain. And then from Shire, I moved into working for smaller companies that focus on maybe one one rare disease product and focus really on on the orphan drug space as well um and um worked for ptc therapeutics looking after rest of world supply chain from them from their irish office so with rare diseases um you know people ask me what orphan drugs are and orphan drugs treat rare diseases and rare diseases are very much defined as a disease that one in ten thousand people suffer from now there's various different definitions and that's important because those definitions of a rare disease um is what drives the incentives for the treatments which are orphan drugs and in um before 1983 there was very few treatments for orphan drug no very few orphan drugs on the market very few treatments for rare diseases there was only 37 in fact and when you think that there's over 5000 rare diseases in the world that's quite a small percentage so in 1983 Ronald Reagan in the US brought in the orphan drug act and that was um um designed to incentivize pharmaceutical companies and the industry to um develop um, treatments for these rare diseases. So this enabled, um, you know, it gave tax credits for research and development. It gave increased patents, and it also gave kind of um, reduced um, approval times for these for these products as well. And that was so successful. There's now coming up for 700 treatments for these rare diseases, but obviously that leaves a lot of untreated rare diseases as well. And it was so successful in the US that the EU and Japan um, followed suit in, in 1993 and 2000, respectively. So that's kind of the, the world that I work in. And we really do focus on the, the smaller companies that are looking to expand their base globally, either from a European or a, a US base, typically. But we're also looking and, and working now in the Asia Pacific market as well. So when I founded Orphan Drug Consultant in 2017, I, I felt there was a gap in the market for these small companies. So when you have a small company, you don't have separate departments for every activity that you need from a, a technical perspective. So, you know, I remember people saying to me, you know, well, you know, in, in my last company, that was the artwork department. And I'm like, that's you. And in my last company, there was a customs department and, a, and an indirect tax or VAT department. I'm like, yeah, that's you as well. So, I mean, if you look at this, then there's there's typically not um, um, enough, you know, um, volume of work for separate roles to be um, created for these for these 
um, activities, but they're still critical in order to ensure your product reaches launch and your product reaches successful continued supply. And that's really important um, for, for, for the patients that we work with because it's such a small patient population. They're, they're very heavily involved and they understand the, the mechanism of what we're doing. So it's quite transparent when you're in a smaller company. So that's where we come in. We bring in an approach that we provide all these different services to our clients. And we also make sure that there's a connections, there's connections between you know, compliance and, and quality assurance obligations to the, the tax strategy or the financial strategy. There's connections. So somebody doesn't decide just to change a manufacturer um, without understanding the full implications when we're working with them of what that means. Well, if you move from manufacturer in the Netherlands to Bulgaria, here's the local legislation requirements. Here's the changes that you're going to need to your customs. Here's the changes you're going to need to your tax strategy. Here's the changes you're going to need to your, your quality assurance functions. It's not just as simple as, you know, we're going to, um, in the pharmaceutical world, it's, it's going to cost us 30% less to manufacture in one country as opposed to the other. There's many, many um, implications to the changes in such a regulated industry. And, and that's what we bring to the table and support our clients on. Um, and um, yeah, we're, 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 it's, it's going really well. We're really enjoying it as a team. Right. I've got so many directions I could go in. <laughs> <laughs> I've um I do, and I'm I'm jotting them all down because there's just there's so much good stuff from from you and I want to start with your startup story sure at, you know at Orphan Drug like talk me through and talk our listener through what was you know you mentioned a gap in the market but it's all it's all well and good have seeing a gap in a market but you know as I know firsthand actually doing something about it and growing that business like. Talk us through what that was like where you decided to go on your own and you know, you're a very employable person given your, you know, you're a pharmacist and you've got uh, incredible background. So what did that feel like from a risk perspective? Is it something you always wanted to do? You know, how did you navigate that, that kind of startup piece? Yeah, sure. Um, it's scary. I think anyone that's done it will tell you that it's scary. And, um, you know, of course, um, I had a lot of opportunities to, to take a, a, a role. And I think really one of the things that you have to recognize and when you're starting a business is, you know, and, the, and you learn these in, when you're doing an MBA, but then the, the teachings from your MBA come back to you as you're, as you're developing and starting your own business, as you know as well, Raman, is it's not about money. Um, it's about your intrinsic motivation. So what motivates you um, is what's going to drive your business. And that's really what drove me. It wasn't about, you know, the intent was to, you know, make sure I maintained a similar salary level to the one that I was on in the industry already. But I, I knew that I could do that through an employee role in a more straightforward manner. So, I mean, my journey was was very different. I just felt I felt that I could do this work better. Um, as an independent consultant, I felt that there was something that I could offer to many companies and support many companies. I wouldn't do this work. I wouldn't do what we do in orphan drug consulting and, you know, our ability to solve problems. Um, we have a reputation for supporting and solving problems that are complex and people are struggling with. I wouldn't do that for any other industry than, than the pharmaceutical industry because I really believe in what we do. And um, that's why I became a pharmacist. Um, there's a healthcare background at home. Um, and I really, you know, felt that this is where I wanted to go and to, to bring the skills that the team and I bring to getting um, patients medicine. And I think rare diseases is really quite a motivator for me as well. And one of the reasons I, I set this up, because 
it's um, a lot of pediatrics, so a lot of children. Um, there's another piece of it that there's a lot of um, untreated cancers, so a lot of oncology work. And, you know, you really can see the difference directly to people. You you get to know the patients. And obviously with data protection, you don't know exactly, but you know their stories, you know of them, you you work with them because they're such a small group. And to see them getting treatment is, is a huge satisfaction personally. And that was kind of one of the, the reasons. And the other piece as well is I... I felt then as well that there was a different, better way of working from a cultural perspective, from a team perspective. Um, you know, and I, I understand that every organization, as my organization has grown, we've put in processes and standards and you have to have your, your, your policies, your HR policies, your employment policies, and we have them. But they're there to be put there for people to understand our expectations. And then, you know, what I say to people about the contracts and the policies, read them, follow them, and then put them in the drawer and do your job. Because I expect that, you know, I was meeting with the team a minute ago and I said to them, you know, I'm not here to, to wipe anyone's nose. <laughs> I said, I'm here to help you and lead you and support you. And I said, and, and you know, and, and this is a different work environment. And that was a real motivator for me as well. Um, I think one of the things I enjoy most about consulting is the loss of power. Um, and I really do enjoy that. And you really, when you start your own business and you know this yourself, Raman, as well, you, 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 you disassociate yourself from all those trappings that you had in other organizations of, you know, the desk and the title and the, and the team, um, because you're working at your own kitchen table at the start. And that's, that was, I found that really empowering and motivating as well. So that was kind of the reasons. And that's the way we work today still. Not always at the kitchen table, of course, anymore, but in that in that in that vein and that atmosphere. And how have you found the process and the challenge of you know scaling your business? And I suspect one of the challenges you found as you've added, you know, you've grown your team is getting that balance between doing the doing because you are clearly a very technically proficient individual, but actually also running the business and being the face of the business, because I know firsthand that's that's a real challenge to get that balance. So how, how has that been for you? Yeah, I, mean, I found that it's a step transition. I'm sure you found the same as well, that it's a real step transition. So I find that we go through a transformation every two years or so, and that is speeding up as the company grows. Um, and it's really important, I think, to to talk to other people that have been through this. And that has helped me enormously. But I've actually found it great. I mean, it is it is it would be very easy to to stay in your technical proficiency. Um, but if I do that, that means like there's only one of me and there's only, you know, so many hours in the day. So if I do that, we'll be able to help and work with less organizations and companies. Um, so by employing, you know, fantastic people and, and helping them understand how we work and most of them, you know, don't need much help. As I said, they, they hit the ground running. We we have such a fantastic team. I'm so lucky um, that, um, you know, we, we can support more organizations and get these product launches off the ground quicker. And, and one thing that I haven't mentioned already is we do a lot of early access program work. So what does that mean? It means that we get access for the medicines to patients before they're even approved on the market. So when you're working in that environment, it's quite tricky. And then having those nuances and educating people on that. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be a teacher. So I think to myself very much that um I do a lot of that as well. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoy seeing people come into the team and, and grow, but also the companies that I work with. I enjoy seeing them grow and develop as organizations with our advice and support and that they can do it themselves in the end. So I found the transition really interesting, actually. 
Um, and as I move into more of a CEO role, I have done the last year, year and a half for sure. Um, it's it's great. You know, it's great to be learning about different things and to constantly be growing as well. Yeah, I know. And it, it is fascinating. I'm kind of, I've got a smile on my face as I'm, I'm listening to your story because I kind of resonate so much. But you're obviously doing something right because I, uh, doing some digging on you, I, I saw that you were a finalist in the EI Entrepreneur of the Year Award in, in 2022, which is a phenomenal achievement. And, you know, I think I know how difficult it is to start a business, let alone grow it, but obviously grow it to an extent where you're being recognized by, you know, one of the most prestigious kind of awards. And what what did that mean to you to be, I suppose, recognized in, in such a kind of prestigious uh, kind of, I would say competition, but I don't think necessarily it's competition as opposed to just being spotted for all the things that you're you're doing for your business and industry yeah like there's 25 of us are finalists this year in 2022 and you know I, I really I think everybody on the on the in the group would say and the alumni as well that it's it's the stage it's not a competition you've already you're already reaping the benefits of it, it look it meant so much um it's me it's means so much I'm getting so much benefit and enjoyment out of the Ernest and Young Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, it's a fantastic process. Um, and, you know, it culminates in the awards night at the end of November. We are invited and being brought on a CEO retreat um, in Austin, Texas and New York in September. Um, and that opportunity is just amazing. But even on that, the alumni um, the events that happen, the support that you're getting from these fantastic um, entrepreneurs and people that are very seasoned, um, has been really great for me and my my confidence. And you know, you 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 think to yourself as I think we, everyone thinks like this. And I'm very transparent about this to the team. You know, I say don't ever be afraid to ask stupid questions. But as you move into kind of more of the business world, from 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 being a pharmacist and a technical expert in in the in the in the in the pharmaceutical field, and you you're interacting with people and from you know in all areas and all different types of business, um, it's it's fantastic to hear people's stories and to realize you're not alone. And the advice that I'm receiving from the alumni, even just two or three months in, has has helped me drive and make decisions in the business, even the last few months that I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to do in the in the past without kind of you know sense checking it and double checking and that and. I think that's really that's the, the 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 empowerment of EY as well the the recognition and the acknowledgement that you as an entrepreneur in your business is is worthy of this um accolade and achievement has has really it's it's really meant a lot to me Raman. Mm-hmm. Well congratulations I think Thank it's you. an amazing achievement and I love what you said there about what you're rather than you know <laughs> basking the glory of of the the recognition you're taking the opportunity to to meet others in there which i think is fantastic so so let's switch gears because i could i could spend all day asking you about business stuff and and startup stuff but i want to dig into the rare disease piece and i suppose the awful drug part of it because you mentioned it at the start and i was making some notes and um it, it's funny because it's I see the language used more and more now than I've ever seen before. I remember maybe 15, 16 years ago, the CDMO that I worked for said, hey, we should be helping companies in the in the orphan drug kind of space. And it was just such a small part of the kind of the focus area back back in the kind of early 2000s. What what is driving the growth in the kind of in, in orphan drug requirements? Is it is it the 
slightly more favorable kind of pathway from a, a regulatory perspective? Is it, you know, I suppose just a desire to meet these unmet needs that you mentioned or, and you know, or are there other factors that are driving it? Because, you know, you see a lot of companies not necessarily do what you guys do, but talk about that they can help in kind of helping clients take early phase drugs and get them through this pathway to market quicker. But it'd be great to get your thoughts on what's kind of what's driving that growth. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, I mean, I think pharmaceuticals, like every org- company, every part of business is a business, you know, and in order to get patients medicine and, you know, there's a lot of queries and questions that come up about that. And particularly when I'm with friends and family, you get a lot of questions like that about, oh, the pharmaceutical industry is this and you're, you know, people are making money on that. But the, re- the reality is, is that um, unless um, unless the, the industry is making money and um, the medicines don't get to patients um, and the, the industry is funded like all industries by, by, you know, private equity and by pension funds and, and that sort of aspects. So you have to show a benefit but I think what people don't understand is that is not the main motivation of anyone I know working in pharmaceuticals. So like when you look at the rare disease aspects of it, why is that? It is the fastest growing area in pharmaceuticals. And yes, the incentives that um, that were given by the governments and to have this what's called orphan drug designation is really valuable for your for your medicine to achieve. And um, but there's a lot of strict criteria around that in order to achieve it. So, you know, those tax credits, those increased patents, those accelerated approval timelines, that does make it more attractive. But most of the people I, I know that have worked in, in these disease states are doing it because of personal reasons, um, you know, because they have an interest. A lot of the companies I work with have been open for maybe 10 years and never have had a commercial product on the market um, and, you know, had never successfully made money. And it takes, it takes a lot of t- a long time. And then when they do, you know, that the prices you see has to you know, try and make some money back for the investors on that. But the the fastest growing, the fast growing piece of it is the technology as well. And the way that science is developing and how we're moving forward. So if you look at, you know, the, the, the history of the pharmaceutical industry in the last hundred years or so, and you see how penicillin was developed, and then we got into kind of antibiotics and antibiotics resistance, and you see the development of, you know, treatments for for cardiac, for, for, um, for, for lungs, for, for different sort of aspects like that. This is the next step where you have these rare diseases that, you know, people would just die from um, years ago. And, and now they're not. They're living longer lives. They're, they're getting help on that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the development of the technology and the understanding of what we can do from a science perspective is growing this as well. Um, and the next stage, steps then is really this um um, uh, it's gene therapy and that's such an exciting part of the rare disease world and gene therapy is where we're you know the, the next stage of technology is you will take someone's dna and make a personalized medicine and it's a curative treatment so this will actually cure people's you know disease states that they've had to live with all their lives and that's that's so exciting to be on the cusp of that and you know getting the cmos involved in that and there is a specific cohort of ceos that support because we have to remember it's small volume so, you know, where you're not, you're not making 30,000 packs, you're making 300 packs for a country or less in a run. And so you have to make sure that your manufacturers are on board and support you on that. But I think it's the technology that that has driven it. But, you know, also, of course, there has to be a return on investment for the people that fund these, um, this research and development as well. That's a, that's really good insight. And yeah, that's, that, it's fantastic to get some of the kind of 
underlying reasons behind this. And one of the terms we hear on the podcast a lot, and which you know I, I see around, is is the concept of personalized medicines. How does personalized medicines, in your definition, fit into the area that you work in? Would you see that as a, a subset area of a curative treatment? Is that your definition, or do you see that as something different to what the area that you work in? No, I think, you know, I've talked a lot about rare disease and obviously, you know, my company is called Orphan Drug Consulting, but actually we we work now in non-rare diseases as well. So we've done a lot of work on vaccines for obvious reasons the last couple of years and we do work on other things as well. But I do view that the personalized medicine piece is is more of a smaller cohort of patients. Um, that might change and expand. I mean, personalized medicines will not just be limited to small patient numbers, but then the the complexity of the treatment regimen and the relative newness of it means that the patient population, the types of treatments that we're looking at as well, are more small in that focus. But that is the future. And I, I, you know, I think fast forward 15, 20 years time, you know, we'll just be here talking about this personalized medicine in a blase way. Right now we're, we're figuring it out as, as, a, as an industry you know, the agencies, the regulatory authorities are figuring it out as well. The, le- the le- legislation and the rules that apply um, don't work for personalized medicines in some instances as well now. So it's it's such a new area. And that's, you know, where I think it does fit in. I mean, we're, you know, my, my goal and aim as an organization is we support kind of this new technology coming out, this cutting edge, and we provide the solutions because it's not all figured out. So you, you're talking about 15 years ago with the CMOs and that they really didn't support rare diseases. And now a lot of them do. And it's pretty common to have orphan drugs on your portfolio as a manufacturer or as a as a pharmaceutical company this is the next step this is the next one that's coming up now and um you know it's 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 life-saving for people it's going to be life-changing as well as life-saving for people you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space we are in the eye of the storm of of a real revolution and it, it feels more like a revolution than evolution some of the things that you've talked about that we are creating that future today and that certainly is a very exciting it is an exciting time to be in this space and and just just so i understand so your your clients would they typically be biotech companies an early phase say virtual pharmaceutical companies or do you tend to work more on the vendor side where you support vendors with their client projects or is it a combination of both? Um, it's it's typically the client that would engage us. So we work a lot with the vendors and I, that's a big advantage for our clients. Um, and then occasionally the vendors, the, the manufacturers, distributors will ask us to support them in some improvement work they're doing actually more so than anything else. So they'll say, we're looking at this process and we've worked with you across 10 clients. Can you provide us input on this, how we can do this better? Or, you know, can you give us the voice of the customer? And we, we do that a bit with the vendors, but the bulk of our work, you know, would be that we support the clients in, in getting, in working with the vendors. And the advantage there is, you know, for both the vendor and the client is that we've done it before. So when the vendor sees our name come in, they say, okay, this is great because they understand how we work and they understand, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. And vice versa, then the client knows that I, I'll, I'm i perfectly happy to say to the vendor or the team is, look, we've done this a year ago and we know we can do it this way. And what's different that, you know, and sometimes it is different and that's fine, but we had navigate that as well. But it's it's really our, our spaces, um, you know, um, virtual um, outsource, which actually 
all pharmaceutical companies are doing to some level or that, you know, the bigger pharmaceutical companies do have in-house manufacturing, of course, but even they're actually acting as CMOs now and they're doing work. So some of the bigger pharmaceutical companies would have actually an aspect where they work for smaller companies and there's a lot of partnerships and alliances. So everybody in some element is doing a virtual outsourced um, model now. Um, from that perspective but yeah the preference is and as early as they like so early phase we, we do preclinical, we do phase one you know I always say to people the earlier we get in the better we can support your understanding and we we walk in with the assumption this is going to be successful you know your your timelines are going to be successful your clinical trial results and it's not always the case and we've worked with companies not always the case but if you have that mindset and you support your clients to think like that as in we're going to wait and it's not that we we trigger off a big spend or a big hiring and um, piece we say okay here's what we can do now and here's what we should do now and then we wait for the next clinical trial results but we operate on the premise it's going to be successful and i think that really helps the organization engage and 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 and, and move forward to this you know commercialization pathway that we we help them drive drive towards as well and it's it's fantastic but yeah that's the companies that we we like to work with the smaller ones where we can really make a positive impact Great. And I love that success mindset piece there that you just mentioned, like going into it with the right attitude is, is is half of it rather than, you know, going into it with a kind of a more negative view, which is, oh, it might work, but we're not sure, <laughs> which I think is very positive. And, and even, you know, as a, as a huge fan of uh, niche businesses and growing areas, this is exactly, it, it's fascinating to hear how your business sits at that kind of pivot point between supporting these early companies and then I suppose accessing and getting best practice from the supply chain. And I wanted to ask you a bit about the, you mentioned obviously you work with, you know, CMOs and CDMOs and CROs and, and those are typically the people that listen to our podcast. What have you seen change in the last few years and in terms of kind of development from a CDMOs and sophistication in the way that they work? And we had a guest on a couple of years ago who, I asked him if he could change one thing about the industry uh, and he said that he, he wished CDMOs did things in a uniform way and that they didn't all do things in a different way. So I'm curious to know, depending on the CDMO do you work with, do you have to, does everyone do things differently and that just presumably makes your life more difficult so yeah about five questions in one there for you yeah no that's that's okay i mean i'll answer the the last one first if that's okay raman i mean um no i wouldn't agree with that um i like the fact that everyone is different i mean it'd be very boring roar if everybody was saying is was, was working the same way and when i'm helping a client pick a vendor so pick a manufacturer pick a distributor you know i don't just look at the fit from a technical perspective but I also look at the fit from a cultural perspective and that's what's great about about the different vendors then you know their strengths and their their weaknesses um can align with 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 the with the companies I have so I'll give you an example I mean if I have a a US biotech that um is going to have a larger volume and wants to go to 15 countries I'll pick a different distributor to a distributor that's based in Europe has most their team in Europe and really just wants someone to pick, pack and ship, you know, so the the different levels of services and the different supports. And again, we have to look at the type of product it is, the network, the types of clients, patients that they're going to have, you know, is there extra programs? So it's very common now for rare diseases to have what's called risk minimization programs. So 
concerns about, you know, safety or, or kind of adverse effects that would happen that you have to monitor and provide extra information. So that's a service now that a lot of um, um, our, our distributors support. Um, and then understanding that. And then from the manufacturing perspective, you know, who can do what's called late stage customization? I mean, everybody wants the product label. Everyone wants to keep everything in a bottle and then label it as it goes out the door. That's not possible for very small volumes. But then some people do tailor and offer that. And I really enjoy the differences between the vendors because I said some vendors, um, some clients need different, everybody, different companies need different things. And the fact that that's there is 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 really great. And then you you work across a number of vendors and 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 that matches what's really important. It's just like a job, you know. Um, you know, I say to people when I'm hiring them for either my clients or myself, I say, you, your CV's got you in the door. We'll talk about technical another time. I was like, but well, this is a two-way street. It's a personality at this stage. And that's kind of how I feel. Obviously, you have to look at the technical piece as well. But going back to the earlier part of your question about what's changed and what's important, I mean, we're getting more and more global and there's a lot of requirements as well for shipping things all over the world. Um, and the last couple of years has taught us that nothing is certain and um, not even routes of delivery are certain. And um, even the ability to um, order and get your transport, you know, boxes from one better way describing it became uncertain because of the demand in the last couple of years. Um, but there's a, a, an increasing expectation for compliance and transport of safe medicines and management of the medicine safely, which is entirely appropriate. Um, you know, we've had serialization come into the EU in the last couple of years. That was a big change for the industry where every pack had to be serialized and there really had to be a lot of connections set up between the manufacturer, the distributors and the, the local registered agencies to make sure that the product was traceable from, from the start to the finish. So that was a big challenge for, for the industry, for sure, but a good one. And when you look at that and you see overall, what's the one thing that's developing and increasing and the expectations are, are going up and up? It's IT. It's, you know, understanding, you know, your capabilities in IT, is your system validated properly? You know, do you have the right systems? Can can your system speak to other systems? Can you interface? That's an expectation. And, and as part of that, then, you know, I have to make sure then, and, and I'm not an IT expert at all, and my, my background is not IT, but you have to, um, I joke that I know enough to be dangerous, but no, I know enough to, I know enough to know when to refer to someone else. But you know, to make sure that these systems can robustly repeat because we rely on them so much now that they can robustly repeat the same process over and over again. Um, and, and that's a big that's that's something that's coming more and more um, important is automation in the industry also. And it's something I see the, the vendors really coming up with as well, which is great. Mm -hmm. It's great. Fascinating insights, honestly. I think I could talk to you all day and, and kind of pick your brains on what's happening. You get, you've got such a an interesting perspective on, on the industry. And you mentioned something around culture fit, and we had a guest on, uh, I think it was episode fifty seven, a gentleman called Carl Turner, who is the kind of head of outsourcing for Maine Pharma, which is a pharmaceutical company headquartered in Australia. And, he talked about, I think he had the four C's uh, that he evaluates his vendor partners. And one, of, and he said the most important one was culture fit. So to your point, it's really fascinating that you you also kind of mentioned that as, as an important piece as well. And I was, I was going to ask you, and you started talking about it already, which is great, about COVID and the impact of the pandemic from, and you know, obviously you've talked about the, I suppose, the digital impact and technology impact and the supply chain. What what else changed? If you look, if you reflect back on how the pandemic impacted 
this space as you see it from less so the vantage point of the CDMO, because we often get that perspective on the podcast, but actually more so the vantage point of the virtual biotech company where a lot of the growth is coming from. What, how is how has that changed the way they navigate the market, the way they uh, choose suppliers and, and partner with companies? It'd be great to get your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for the smaller guy in the industry, it was tough. Um, you know, I mean, there there was the scenario in the States that um, there was the ability for your production line to be pulled at any time to make COVID vaccines at any stage. And that was mandated by government there. And that just that extended to supplies as well. So I think the fact that it was sprung on us all so quickly and we were unprepared um, was was tough. And, you know, <clears throat> the things that I thought initially would be impacted actually weren't. Um, um, but what, what was impacted was this um, ability to, you know, secure and to be confident in securing your space for production, in securing your components that you needed for production and in securing your ability to get the product around the world. They were the kind of the three key aspects that were that were really hard. And if you think about that and, and think about that, that was that's everybody. That's life at the moment, even. You know, I mean, you 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 go to get something in the shop that would have been, I mean, I, I bought a bike last week and I walked into the shop and they were like, this is what's available, you know, take it or leave it. <laughs> and when you're thinking about that, and I'm like, you know, and I, I don't want to compare buying a bike to the farm industry, but that's actually what it was like. They were like, this is your, this is what's available, take it or leave it. And you you had to take it or leave it accordingly. And then, you know, obviously there was an increased spend then. Um, you're looking at your inventory and saying we need to, you know, and obviously it's, it, it's important to manage your inventory, particularly in a smaller company where you don't want your inventory to go out of date um, because of timelines or reimbursement. But we had to take more risks, which was more cost and waste. Um, in making sure that we increase the inventory so that there was product supply available. We're hearing about shortages now um, in the pharmaceutical world of, of key products. I have people calling me all the time, friends and family saying, this is short, that's short, can you help? And I'm, I'm saying, obviously, no, because I'm not working with the company. But I'm trying to explain to them why something's short. And it all comes back to, you know, the uncertain times we live in, like COVID and, you know, people weren't working. Um, and, you know, and then people weren't working, thing, you know, areas were shut down. I know it gradually came back over after a number of months, but even that had an impact. Um, so I think that's the first impact and difference I've seen that's, I suppose, a little bit different. The second one then is the impact on people's health. Um, so while, you know, things went on, this inability to see doctors and healthcare professionals, and I'm at the end of my patience with it personally as well. But, you know, people need, I mean, I don't, obviously COVID is an awful illness and we've had a lot of people be very sick and, and die from it and we really fully don't understand the implications of long COVID. But I'm, I'm concerned about the measure of the healthcare impact on other disease states as well. And I'm really concerned about that because, you know, there's no substitute for seeing someone in person and it's fantastic that we have zoom and and teams and all these really great tools to allow us to continue somewhat life as normal but at the same time there's no substitute for seeing people and i think that's kind of from a personal and from the more cultural perspective thing as well that's the one thing i found with my clients when we would travel to see them regularly and i've worked i have clients now that i've worked with for a year and a half that i've never met and i find that hard 
And, you know, as you go back traveling in the last number of months, and I've done a lot of traveling in 2022 because I'm essentially playing catch up and meeting people. It's been such a joy to meet people again. And I don't say that lightly and to, you know, to, to, to shake someone's hand and to sit and have a drink with them. It's made such a difference. And it's an area of the business that you don't realize how important it is. I mean, we all say, oh, face to face, there's nothing like face to face. But I mean, it's it's something that's been lost in the pandemic and it's something that when you're trying to resolve difficult problems and you know there's shortages as i mentioned and there's production slot limitations and you're trying to you have to spend more money to make sure you secure the product you know um it's a lot easier to have a frayed temper with someone you've never met before or someone you don't call well actually i really like that person and that 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 i think that's a uh, it's not just a farmer or my industry thing as well i mean i'm sure we all see at the moment that people's um, tempers are pretty thin. <laughs> you know, you've obviously, on... met, you've obviously met my wife, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she probably has a lot to put up with, Rana. I, <laughs> I have to, I have to support my my, yeah. my, my own sex there. You know? <laughs> She's a medic as well. Medics and pharmacists always stick up for each other. There you go. Good. There you go. But um, you know, I mean, and and it's no different. And this, as a consultancy firm you're always expected to be, you know, um, the ones that are bringing the energy to the meeting, the motivation to the meeting. And I just talked to my part of the team on this earlier on and, and encourage them to take the time out, to have their downtime, to come back to our team internally, to make sure they talk out their frustrations. Because as consultants, you're expected to bring that energy and bring the knowledge as well. And it's harder. It's harder at the moment for everyone to keep that freshness and the motivation. It's getting easier as the pandemic eases off, but the ever-looming threat of having to come of coming back is is hard for people to live with, I think, as well. No, it's it's, it's really good to get your insight. And I think you're right. I think the long-term impact of covid the non-covid stuff is probably pretty hidden at the minute and we'll 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 see it in the next 10 20 years no doubt about it and we've got about five minutes left and the, again I've, i absolutely love this conversation and we could we could certainly talk all day and and you you give them some fantastic insights but there's two two kind of areas actually there's one i just wanted to rewind back but and it might be a really quick one you mentioned before earlier on and i noted it down talked about early access that patients get early access to medicines do you mind just explaining what that means and how that works my my understanding of that would be where you have a very sick patient and they might get access here to a, a medication before it's i suppose fully approved is that the is that my correct assumption or is it something different yeah it's it that that assumption is right but it's not even before it gets approved in a territory but before it gets approved in your country or your region so right, you know it would be very common that um you know once it gets to a certain level of so you have patients on clinical trials and they're receiving the medicine and then you would obviously you know with with rare diseases particularly they're highly genetic so then you would have scenarios that maybe um siblings would have that that illness as well but they're not on the trial so, you know, then you're trying to give them the medicine as well, because, I mean, if you have and I, I've worked a lot in, in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, that's a muscular weight and disease in boys. It's fatal. They're in a wheelchair by the time they're eight or nine. And, you know, their life expectancy is, you know, late teens, early 20s max. It's quite heartbreaking. And you can probably hear it in my voice. Yeah, that, no, it's you, you know, horrific. And, and, you know, if you have um, a, 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 you're, you're, if you have a, a five year old brother that's on the scheme and you're seven, 
and you're not eligible because you're seven. Um, like that's where we step in and try and make sure the the, the patient has access to the medicine. Um, and then, you know, if the product's approved in the US, so like, you know, there's there's coming up for 700 products approved in the US, um, less than 50% of them are in the EU, um, actually. And that's where early access really comes into its own. And it's not just the EU, but in, in other regions all over the world where a product is approved and on the market in the US, but it's not in other regions. Um, sometimes there's plans to approve, sometimes there's not, um, or to file the product for approval, and sometimes there's not. And that's where really we make sure that you work with the with the right doctors and the right teams to get to use the schemes. And the schemes are they're localized schemes per country. And that's where the knowledge needs to be key then to get that access to the patients or medicine. And then, you know, obviously you have to make sure then you, you think about the financial repercussions of that as well um, and, and see if there's an option for reimbursement to make sure that it's viable, financially viable for this to continue. And that's where we're looking at. And then again, you hear a lot of heartbreaking stories about, you know, come and pay families fundraising for a lot. Of, and, and these are the ones then that you try to work around and get the governments to support as well. Yeah, I know. It's, um, it's great to hear. And I suppose what's really fascinating about having you on the show, Evelyn, is your closeness to the patient, I would say. I think, you know, a lot of the people that we interview are obviously vendors or, you know, people on the drug development side. But that kind of, I suppose, intimacy with the patient is not always there. But I think you're seeing it just because obviously the nature of rare diseases are in small paper patient populations um and actually you see the full you see the whole thing holistically from start to finish and so it's in one sense it's amazing the work you do but also for you you see the the flip side and heartbreaking where you've got a situation where it would be great to have access of one of those 700 treatments to another market but for financial reasons they can't get access and you know as you said you see the fundraising piece which it's very common as you know in the uk where you'll see yeah often it's all kids um I mean, interestingly enough, you know, my uh, my my niece had leukemia years ago, and one of the kids on her ward was it was a very high profile young man, and you know, he ended up passing away. And yeah. in that fundraise, they were trying to get access to a drug in the US, which I think had been approved for a similar type of uh, disease, and uh, yeah, and unfortunately, it didn't happen in time. But it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. So I suppose it just underlines the work that you do and back to your purpose, which I think is fascinating right at the start. Like you are motivated by having an impact on patients, but unfortunately for you, it's, you know, it's like my, my wife's a doctor, she sees the good and the bad. And that's just the, that's just the the challenge when you're on the forefront of, 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 of helping people you see. The, the, and you know, absolutely Raman. And like, you have to look at the other side as well. It's not just always about money that the lack of access or funding. It's also about the criteria that the patient meets. So, it's really hard. And actually, I would say a lot of the founders that I work with have family members or children that have the disease state. And that's, you know, that that skews their thinking. Of course, it does. We're all human. And, you know, you're there and, and the team are there as the voice of reason. You're trying, you know, you're just saying this patient doesn't meet the criteria. So if you have um, and they're small patient population, the clinical trials, if you have 50 patients and 10 of them don't meet the criteria. Yes, they're getting the medicine, those 10 children. But what about the rest of the children around the world that might not get it if your clinical trial results aren't what they're supposed to be because there's 10, 20% of the population that don't meet the criteria set out. So there are the hard decisions as well. Um, and the other the other piece of that is um, 
you have to think about the health economics and that's what governments do. And I get it. I get it. Like, you know, there's two patients in a country and they're going to cost 700,000 euro a year to fund. And I've heard in my own country, you know, the, the head of the health economics saying, well, I can, you know, I can treat 30 people with this medicine on that or two. And that's fine until it's your child. And that's where you have to work as well and understand as well. And it's it's very it's it's difficult. There's no there's no right or wrong answer on that. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's great to get the different perspectives in. Okay, two two final questions. One one thing I love about well love about doing this podcast is um, and what one of the frustrating things is I I actively try to get female leaders on this show uh, for many reasons. One of the main ones is I've spent my entire career surrounded by female bosses, mentors, 70% of my team are female, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, as you know, it's a very male, it's still overly male dominated industry. And you, you are, you know, I look at you and, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you've taken risk. You're obviously a pharmacist by trade as well. You, you are a great role model for, for young females uh, and actually young males as well, but particularly young females. So if we have a, 25 to 35 year old um or you know any age i think uh f- young young kind of female listening to the show today what what advice would you give give them yeah i would say um to to not be afraid you know and i would say definitely um i i have i acknowledged to myself within about two years that i wasn't taking the the risks that i i should be taking and calculated risks of course um because of of that kind of doubting yourself as well um, and I would say don't doubt yourself trust your gut you know and I say that to everybody and you know my friends of mine they're starting up their business and you know people that I went to school with and they come to me for advice and I say remember that advice is someone else's view of the past and it's their view of the world take the advice if it resonates with, with you do it always listen to everybody but trust your gut and I would say that to male female trust your gut go at what you want to do and the other thing I'd say, particularly for females, is, you know, um, don't 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 get worried about fitting in. You know, for young women, I would say, don't worry about fitting in. It's and that's hard, particularly. And I actually think it's for young men as well these days as well. You, you see there's more of a focus on appearances, you know, all these awful shows. And I'm going to say Love Island. <laughs> I, I don't watch it, but I know enough about it. All yeah, these awful yeah. shows that, you know, showcase these very talented brilliant in gorgeous looking young people as idiots and that's what it does and that's not necessarily the truth you know we don't know what those people are like we just see an edited version of that you know um but it does influence society and culture and don't be afraid to to be who you are you know if you want to wear the red lipstick wear it if you want to wear the bright dress wear it if you want to wear that you know, tie, wear it, that doesn't impact on who you are as a, as a business person. And, you know, people will hear me say that, and it is true, like when you're a woman, and I heard Hillary Clinton talk about this, actually, and the amount of time she wasted on hair and makeup every day, but it's necessary, you know, and if it makes you feel good, go for it. If you don't want to wear, if you don't want to do your hair and makeup, don't, you know, I mean, and that's, you know, and, and kind of own your own decision. I, I resonate what Hillary was saying. It was such a waste of time. I, I like to I like to do my makeup and that's fine, but I'm not afraid to be a woman or a a girl, a young woman in this industry. And I would say that to people, don't be afraid to be who you are. And I I think that's the other part I would say too, is that, um, 
you know, when you're starting out and you're a leader and you're a young leader in in um, in in the company, and I was lucky because pharmacists, um, you were expected to manage from the time you're 21, 22, so you have some experience. But when I went into the industry, I had to totally relearn everything that I learned as a as a pharmacy manager. Um, and I would I say, but like people would say to me, oh, you're this and you're that and you're the other. Yes, I am. And that's who I am as a person. It doesn't mean you, you, you know, and you modify and you do that, but be yourself, be yourself. Yeah. You know, people call me passionate um, and they say, I hate that word. I say people and I say to people, would you call a man passionate? You know, or they say, oh, she's feisty. She's this and she's that. And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm just doing my job. And if I was a man, you wouldn't say I was passionate or feisty. I don't mind. It doesn't bother me. But I mean, it, you know, it's hard not to change who you are. And I see a lot of young women changing who they are in the face of that and never do it. Try mm. never to do it. It's easier said than done, I know. Here, yeah, here. Yeah. What fantastic advice for, for, for young people and actually everyone. I was I was smiling when you were talking about the Love Island thing because, I mean, I don't, I don't watch that type of stuff personally. And the, I was listening to a podcast yesterday with the comedian Jimmy Carr and he talked about, he said, the problem with young people these days is they compare their insides to some people, other people's outsides. And I thought it was such a, it's such an interest in their own insecurities. They then compare with some beautiful person on Instagram and it causes huge conflict in these individuals. And they're not, oh, they're not it's, a, you know, it's all filters and that's, that's their job. Yeah. You know, that's their job, their job, obviously in Love Island, but that was their job for the last three months was to look pretty and, be you know i know i don't know because i i remember i stopped watching reality tv shows years ago <laughs> yeah, me said, I, I never get that hour of my life back <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's funny because I, I mean, uh, our US listeners are going to probably think of what the heck they're talking about, but it's it's fine. I'm sure it'll be uh, it'll be there. Oh soon. Yeah, yeah. And my, I know we're we're running out of time. And one of my final question, I suppose, you know, you've you've given some great pearls of wisdom today. I've made so many notes. I'm kind of scratching my head because I'm going to have to um, type because <laughs> you know once I've done these, the, once we we press stop, I have to type up the notes and, and create a few bullet points. And I'm, I'm yeah. thinking, how the heck am I going to put this down into three <laughs> bullet points? But I suppose you know if you know if our listeners are thinking about you know their strategy plans for the next year or two putting together kind of trends pieces around where where the market is is going. What are the big trends that you you see happening? And one thing I didn't get to ask you, but I suppose it, it links to this, is obviously we're seeing a slowdown in the capital market from biotech perspective, uh, particularly in the US. Um, I don't want that to lead necessarily your answer, um, but you know what what advice from a I suppose a crystal ball perspective from you know trends and what you see on the horizon. I think I think I would say, um, and I I've never really understood why people resist change and I change is hard, but so is life. <laughs> that's what I would say, you know, um, but it's also fun and that's the same for, for life as well. I mean, you need to be agile and flexible and if something's not working out, just pivot it. And, you know, in the biotech industry, yes, things are slowing down, but that's because there was a lot of, um, you know, development of, of, of different programs. I'll just leave it at programs that were, um, not going to be viable. And you could see that from the start. So if you look at the structure of a successful, uh, you know, and that's the other thing I'd say, look at the structure of the past and what's been successful in the past and apply some of that. But also think about, you know, I talked about the IT space, what's going to be the expectation of the future and, and may always make sure that your business and your career can pivot. I never thought when I went to train as a pharmacist in Aberdeen, 
Um, first of all, I thought I'd never end up in Aberdeen. It's the best thing ever happened. One of the best things ever happened to me um, for university because I'm, as you know, I'm from Ireland. And then, you know, but and then I never thought I would end up doing what I'm doing now. Um, so, you know, have your plan, but be always prepared to change and adjust your plan based on opportunities that come your way. That's what I was saying. The plan comes from the past and what's been successful in the pl- past. And people say, well, what's been successful in the past is a good indication of the future. Yes, it is. But then you never know what's going to happen that you need to change and pivot around to that. And, and COVID has just been a great example for that. Like, you know, who knew? Who knew that our, uh, a six-week lockdown would, would turn into a couple of years? Nobody. And But it's it's been a key learner. So, yeah. No, that's, that's great advice. And I think uh, people going into their plans is you, know, you can't plan everything based on what's happened in the rear view mirror. You have to have some kind of flexibility built in to, to pivot, as, as Evelyn said. And Evelyn, honestly, what an absolute pleasure to have you, you. as a guest on Molecules Market. Where can our guests, uh, where can our listeners find you? So uh, I'm conscious of the fact that you're probably going to get inundated with uh, messages and LinkedIn requests. But if someone wants to reach out, if they've got a project, if they've got something, you know, they're looking to use your services, what's the best way to get in touch? Sure. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you know Evelyn Kelly CEO of Orphan Drug Consulting and also our website is an easy way to, to get us as well um, so it's www.orphandrugconsulting.com and you can just send us a message from the website and a member of the team will pick it up and if you want to talk to me personally absolutely happy to do it the, the team will organise that as well so that's that's where you can find us and um, happy to hear from anyone anyone that has anything they want to ask please tell them to reach out I'm always happy to help and give some advice to people as well it might take me a little bit of time to get to them but I always do so yeah thank you Raman and I appreciate the opportunity to speak on the podcast today it's it's been fantastic I've really enjoyed it oh thank you thanks so much for being a guest not at all thank you take care Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.